Now, given my job, you'd probably expect me to be a really keen reader, reading all the time. And I have to tell you the truth tonight, that's not really the way that I am. I have to read a lot because of my job, and I, I like to do that, don't get me wrong, but beyond reading for work or reading books that are related to the Scriptures, I don't actually do that much reading. Bellan can pile through books and read books like one a week or even more. It takes me a long, long time to read a book. But over the past couple of years, I've been reading a series of novels called The Shard Lake Mysteries. And they're set, and this sounds really nerdy and boring, they're set in the times of the Tudors, particularly in the time of the reign of Henry VIII. And Shard Lake is a lawyer, and he gets involved in all kinds of adventures and all kinds of problems, and there are murders, and he has to work out who the murderer is. And there's a whole series of these novels that I've been reading. So, I think over the summer I was reading the fourth one, and it takes me ages. There's hundreds of pages in each of these books. But here's the big problem. Four novels in, I realize that I don't actually really like this guy Shard Lake, because he's really pompous, and he sticks his nose into everything. Half the reason why he gets into all of these adventures is because where most of us would just go, no, just leave that alone. That's none of our business. He makes it his business. And yeah, he does good, and he helps people out, but I just cannot warm to the guy. And I'm kind of left with this conundrum. Do I read? There's actually seven of them all together now. Do I invest the time and see if I begin to like him a bit better? Now, tonight we are moving on in the book of Judges and God's Word to the story of Samson. We've skipped a couple of chapters, and we're here at chapter 13. And we come to Samson, who is perhaps the best known of the judges, certainly up there with Gideon and Deborah in terms of a name that people, or certainly churchy people, would know. And arguably, one of the most problematic of the judges as well. So, I think that at the beginning of this series, as a way of introducing the book of Judges, I was telling you about my dad and the conversation I had with him about preaching from Judges. And my dad said, you know, I would find that hard for you starting to preach on Judges. Like, when you get to Samson, I really do not like Samson. And by the way, what you've got to know about my dad is that that's not some kind of atheist talk, you know, where he, he doesn't like God's Word. There is no one, believe me when I tell you, there is no one who is more respectful of God's Word and who sees it as being God's Word than my dad. And yet, with all of that, his first response when I spoke to him about the book of Judges was, oh, Samson, I just can't warm to him at all. And when you read the story of Samson in the coming weeks, as we're going to do, well, I reckon there is going to be a lot of that story that you will not necessarily like. And we could say of Samson that he's someone who you could really struggle to warm to. And yet, of course, this is God's Word. And Samson is a big part of God's rescue plan. And it's a great reminder to us 
about what needs to happen each time we come to God's Word, whether that be here in church together or in our own time reading God's Word in our homes, that it is so important that we do not get fixated on the characters to the expense of God that we would lose sight of Him. The focus always needs to be on the one who is the hero of this story, the Lord Himself. And so, with that in mind, we continue in this book tonight. Remember, this is the book that tells the story of that time of rulers who were known as the judges. And by now, you will be familiar with the background. This is the time when Israel, the nation that had been chosen by God to be His people, Israel had lost the run of itself. It had lost the plot. The people of God were making it up as they went along. So that when you're reading this book, if you are looking for spiritual heroes, if you are seeking out good examples to follow, you could come away from this book feeling pretty disappointed. But let's remember that this book is not so much an instruction manual, although there is much to learn from it and to apply to our lives. So far, if you think about it, as we have worked our way through 10 chapters, there has been so much application for us, so much that would help us as we work out how to live as God's people in what is such a godless society. There is teaching to be had and instruction to find, but that's not the primary purpose of this book. Much more, this book is a portrait of God's character. It enables us to see what He is like. And one of the things that we have been discovering, and I'm going to put this back up on the screen a bit tonight again, it was something that we were thinking about last time, two weeks ago, when we were looking at that summary chapter in chapter 10. One of the things that we discover about God and His people is this cycle that there seems to be in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, but especially here in the book of Judges. So, let's just refresh our memories about this cycle once again, and hopefully you're aware of this by now, that we have this cycle where the people, God's people, turn away from Him, and that, of course, is reflected in their idolatry, in their worship of false gods, that they go after gods made of stone and wood, rather than worshiping the one true living God, their God. And then we read about how God disciplines them, and we always keep in mind that the Lord is doing that for their good and ultimately for His glory. It's to bring them back on track to be the people that He has called them to be so that He will be glorified through them in the world. And then what happens invariably is as they feel this discipline of God, which usually comes in the form of an invasion by their neighbors, then they cry out to God for help. And then we read of how God delivers them, that the Lord steps in and He delivers His people. And then we get right the way back up to the top, and the cycle is repeated. That's why it is a cycle or a circle. But here's the thing, as we summarize that cycle, and even as we look at that 
diagram, if you want to describe it in that way on the screen here tonight, there is a, a wrong and indeed a dangerous conclusion that we could come to as we look at this and as we consider this. We could come to the conclusion that the Lord who we meet in Scripture, the God whom we come to worship here tonight, is a reactionary God. That we could be inclined to think that about Him in all of this story. That it's almost a case of God's people say to Him, Lord, jump, and He says, how high? What do you want me to do for you now? Right quickly, what is it? And there's a terrible risk that we would think this about God in our own lives as well, fueled by social media posts that seem to imply this, that God is the genie in the bottle waiting to be consulted with and the request to go in and the instant reply to come back. And yet, what have we been discovering of God in this book? Well, rather than Him being a reactionary God, what we see revealed in Scripture about the Lord is that He is, in fact, a faithful God. So that if we think back to chapter 10 again, just for a moment, if we pick up where we left off, because that would be helpful, remember that by the time we get to chapter 10, the situation could not get any worse in terms of God's people and what they have become. Their rebellion against God couldn't be any greater. And yet, in the midst of all of that, when once again they're disciplined, well, in verse 15 of chapter 10, they cry out, please rescue us now. Lord, help us out. Bail us out here. And when you look on down through the rest of that chapter, the Lord's response to His people here in chapter 10 is powerful, and it is entirely consistent with his character and his faithfulness. So, listen again and get a flavor of this back in chapter 10, verse 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And this is the key phrase, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. That is the heart and the character of our God. That is his attitude towards his people he could bear no longer that they were going through this suffering. He couldn't stand it. He couldn't watch it any longer. And surely there is great hope in that verse for God's people here now, because it points us so, so clearly to His grace and to His faithful love. But as we come to chapter 13, and as we have looked back for a moment at chapter 10 again, the, the big question arises again tonight, well, is this the Lord giving in far too easily? Is He that soft touch? And I say that with utter reverence and even asking that question. Is this God doing things on the hoof? Is He making it up as He goes along? Is He responding to His people like an emergency service, or like some kind of genie. And people, that's why chapter 13 is so vitally important in helping us to understand the Lord's character and His purposes. 
It's a chapter that corrects any misunderstandings that we might have about what the Lord is like and the way in which He acts. And in some ways, it is a strange chapter because as we've been discovering so far, and I was saying that to Jack earlier today, who's always waiting for the murders and the, the Baishton heads and everything else, that unfortunately for him and for me, there's none of that in this story tonight. And in fact, in some ways, all of the details of this story seem very mundane. It seems like a, a family story, and then there is this supernatural appearance by an angel that changes everything. But why are we given all of the details even prior to the birth of this next judge, Samson? Well, let's be sure that the big thing that this chapter points us to is God's grace. More than that, we could say that this is a chapter of Scripture that is saturated in His grace. It's a chapter that is dripping grace. And in the time that remains, and by the way, that's a very long introduction, just in case people are doing the, the, the timings of all of this. But in the, the brief time that remains, I want us to consider what this chapter tells us about, about the Lord under two headings. God's plan shows His grace. And then the second heading, God's timing is not our timing. So, first of all, God's plan shows His grace. So that as we come here to chapter 13, the cycle continues. Look at verse 1, and what you read there sounds all too familiar. It is depressingly familiar. That again, that's the key word, again. How many times have we heard that word so far? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And that makes for pretty depressing reading, doesn't it? And then after that introduction, we are brought straight into a story of a family that reveals God's plan for salvation, the plan that He has to rescue His people. And we're not going to go right into all of the details of this, but if we summarize it, and the angel of the Lord appears to the wife of this man, Manoah, who is one of God's people, and the promise comes that she will have a special child. And here is the really big headline about this child. Here is the reason why he will be so special. It comes in verse 5. The key part for us to see, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He will be a savior. He will be a rescuer. He will be a deliverer. And this is the Lord's gracious response to His wayward people. You could say that it is another cycle in the story, or is it? Hang on a second. Is this another cycle? Because I want you to look at that diagram on the screen again. I want you to think about all that we've been hearing all the way through this series. And then scan down through this chapter, and you will notice that there is something that is missing here in this chapter. Let's look at the chapter. Well, first of all, again, the people rebel. So, tick, that's there. Again, they are disciplined by the Lord for their good. So, 
tick, we can see that. And again, the Lord makes provision for their rescue. His grace is at work, so we can tick that off. But you'll see if you look at that cycle that one element is actually missing. Here in chapter 13, the people have not sought the Lord. They have not actually asked for His rescue. This time, the people have not even bothered to cry out to the Lord. There's no indication of repentance. They are so far gone in their sin and in their idolatry and their their focus on other gods that they haven't even bothered to seek the one true living God. So that we said back in chapter 10, things couldn't get any worse, but in actual fact, they have. It just gets worse and worse and worse in this book. And so, people, this is such a powerful reminder of God's grace. Here, we are not encountering a reactionary God. That's not the character of God in this chapter. He is not that fourth emergency service. He is not that genie that some people imagine the one true living God who is above all else to be. He isn't someone who leaves it up to His people to determine what the course of things would be. And what is absolutely beyond any doubt, as you look at this chapter, as you look at this story, that the birth of Samson, the provision of this Savior for God's people, is in spite of of God's people and how they have lived. It is not because of God's people and how they have lived. You would have to agree that it is far, far, far beyond anything that they deserve. And tonight, if we then shift the focus from them to ourselves, if only we had the the humility to recognize this fact in our own life, in our own story, that in Jesus, God has provided a perfect Savior, not because we deserve Him, but because we so badly need Him. That's the terrible truth about ourselves, that the grace of God at work in your life and in my life is unmerited. It is undeserved. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, as he writes to fellow believers in, in Ephesus, he says to those believers, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as we think about the application of all of this, as we think about the response that we should have, I love this quotation here from Dale Ralph Davis, one of the the scholars who I've been reading in preparing these sermons from Judges, and, and reflecting on this chapter, and then reflecting on our lives as God's people in Christ. He puts it like this, if Yahweh, in other words, the, the Hebrew name for the Lord, if Yahweh's help were given only when we prayed for it, only when we asked for it, 
only when we had sense enough to see it, what paupers and orphans we would be, and how true that is. The Lord working His grace in our life, even when we ourselves have no thought of our need of that grace. And as we continue through the chapter, there are little grace notes throughout the rest of this chapter, so that when one visit from the Lord or from His angel doesn't seem to be enough for Manoah and his wife, the Lord is very gracious to them. Verse 8, we're, we're told that Manoah prayed to the Lord, look at that verse, pardon your servant, Lord, I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And possibly our response would be, do you not get it? Did you not listen the first time? Did you not just totally accept what was said, but the Lord's response in verse 9, God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman. Grace. Or towards the end of the chapter, when things get quite spectacular, when the Lord demonstrates His awesome power to Manoah and his wife by bringing his angel back to him on the flame as it rises up to heaven. And, and then the penny drops. You know, they must be slightly slow on the uptake, poor Manoah, but the penny actually drops. Oh, look at this. So, oh yes, he must be from the Lord. He must be an angel. We've seen one of God's angels. We've come face to face with the Lord. And it's a bit of a dad's army moment. We're doomed. We're surely going to die. We have seen God. But as we'll see in just a moment, the Lord keeps His promise and He blesses His grace. This chapter, people, displays the wonderful grace of God. And it does it in such a way that we should rejoice in that. Indeed, we should seek it in Christ if you haven't. But the other thing, and very, very quickly, just briefly, and the irony of this point, His timing's much better than mine. God's timing is not our timing. And isn't that the truth? Look at the conclusion to the chapter, verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtiol. And I want you just very quickly to consider the timetable of all of this with me, that in verse 1, we discover the Israelites were delivered into the hands of the Philistines. God's people delivered by the Lord into the hands of their enemies for 40 years. That's the key point there. It's not just an overnight thing. For 40 long years, and if you'd been under that reign, you would have felt every one of them. And so, you might expect, therefore, that straight away the Lord would send in His Savior, riding in straight away to, to get all of this sorted out. But what actually happens? Well, here in this chapter, the Lord does not provide a ready-made Savior, complete with sword and horse, who instantly delivers the people, 
but His salvation plan unfolds in His time. So that it involves even a child being conceived and then born. And even at that, it says in verse 5, and please note this, that of this child, He will begin the deliverance of Israel. He's not even going to complete the job. He's going to be the start of this salvation, this rescue. So, this is a process that is following a careful plan. And tonight as we finish, let's summarize why this chapter is included here in Judges, because maybe you think, why so much detail? Why looking at a child's life before he was born and then skipping straight from that to chapter 14 and his adult life? It's not a very good autobiography. But it's really important because the inclusion of all of this helps us to understand the nature of God's incredible salvation. It is not a 999 call type of rescue, but it is a salvation of His people worked out by the Lord Himself and planned before this world began. Think about that. Think about God's eternal purposes, God's eternal timetable. That is how the Lord planned His salvation. And inevitably for us tonight, as we come towards the end, if we have an awareness of Scripture, as most of you will do, then presumably, like myself, as you were reading through this, or as you read through this again later, you will begin to see parallels with the nativity accounts that we have in the Gospels. They're hard to avoid. All of the detail, the angel appears to the woman, the promise is given, you're going to give birth to a Savior. Do you see the parallels? And yet, of course, the key difference, and this will be amplified in the coming weeks when we consider the story and the character of Samson, is that here an imperfect Savior is born who will only begin a job but then later, a perfect Savior is born, and He does it all. It is finished, is His cry on the cross. And as we think about that more perfect Savior, and as we think about God's plan at work, we're reminded again of Paul's words to the Galatians. And he tells them, and he tells us in Galatians 4, 4, but when the time had fully come, or if you want to translate that in another way, at exactly the right moment, at just the right time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Brother and sister in Christ, your salvation the Lord's rescue of you is not an afterthought. He's not making it up as He goes along. And in your life, and it's so hard for us to get past this. I confess, it is so hard for me to get past this, but in your life, it is not a case that today you did fairly well. 
You remained fairly faithful. You did some of the things that God would like you to do, and those are important things to do, and therefore God loves you, but tomorrow you mess up. And we need to fight against sin. Don't misinterpret this, but tomorrow you mess up, and so then today God doesn't love me. But tomorrow or the next day, yes, He maybe loves me a bit more. No, He couldn't love me as much today. No, that is not what we see here. It's not what we see in the gospel that in Christ, in Christ, God's love is faithful and sure. Sometimes we don't like the hero of the story. But remember that as we read this story, that as we read this book, there is only one true hero. It is the Lord Himself, and we see Him most clearly in His Son, the Lord Jesus, God incarnate, God with us. And when you encounter the Lord in the Scriptures, you'll not be disappointed. When you meet with Jesus in the Scriptures, you'll like Him. In fact, you'll love Him as you see just how much He loves you. And we're going to sing of what the Lord has done in His eternal plans.